You know, very few sports figures actually transcend both sports, their sport, and popular culture as well, with obviously a few notable exceptions. Muhammad Ali, we just, um, just passed away, we celebrated his life. Jackie Robinson, first African-American man to play Major League Baseball. Michael Jordan, who seems to have promoted every single product in the history of mankind, right? We have Tiger Woods, distinguished himself in other ways, many ways. Peyton Manning, the sheriff, right, Josh? Of course, okay? Got to throw in Peyton Manning there. And, of course, the infamous Johnny Football, right? Hey, do you know Johnny Football? Johnny Manziel burst into the scene some four years ago playing the run-everything, do-everything quarterback for the Texas A&M Aggies. He was actually the first freshman Heisman, Heisman Trophy winner in the history of college football, followed the next year by... Peyton Manning, you know, famous Jameis Winston, okay, that's exactly right. So much talent, so much promise, pass, run, could probably kick, okay, there was all sorts of buzz around him. He was drafted in the first round by the Cleveland Browns, he was going to be their quarterback of the future, but here we are now a mere 18 months later, and Johnny Manziel is no longer in football, 18 months He was like a a meteor in the sky, you know, those kind that are just spectacular to look like, but they last a moment and then they are gone. And if you kept up with any of his story, you know, it just seemed that he sort of drifted from decision to decision with no purpose, no foresight, no planning, living in the moment, the parties, the high life, the whole kit and caboodle until it just came down in a spectacular crash. And looking back on it, you realize, you know, he just did not have a rhythm. He did not have a a pattern, a sustainable rhythm that would carry him through the course of his life. Now, if we're honest, we know a lot of people like that, don't we? We might even know a lot of professing Christians who had great starts, who had so much promise, had so much potential so many gifts, but yet there was some sort of spectacular flame out. And often when we kind of pop up the hood, so to speak, as Pastor Dave would say, we realize that there was no rhythm that would sustain them over the long haul. And in a nutshell, folks, that's been our concern during this series that we've been spending the last eight, ten weeks on this summer, rhythms. We've been asking, how is it? that God wants us to order our lives that we can sustain, that we can thrive. How do we rest? How do we recreate? How do we worship? How do we uh, steward our resources, recreation, on a daily, a weekly basis? Now, as we wind this series down this morning, I want to ask you a favor. I want us to expand our horizons a little bit and go from thinking about days and weeks. I want you folks to think about months and years. I want you to think about what the long haul looks like. I want you to think about the whole arc of your life, regardless of how long that is that God gives you and me. And here are the questions that I think are being pressed forward in Luke chapter 12 for us this morning. One question is, how do you and I leverage life today that has the long-term in view? Number two, how does God want you 
to order your lives now to maximize your impact for the kingdom for the rest of your life? Is there a rhythm that you can establish now that pushes you towards gospel, what I would call gospel productivity? You know, in, in this, this topic, this issue's really been fresh on my heart and mind over this past week. I asked you last week to pray for us as pastors as we headed off to our annual pastor retreat, and we went to the home of Jim and Betty June Moninger. We're going to flash a picture of them up there, and they're as awesome as they look. They're, they're pretty cute, right? And so these are the, the, the parents of, of Julie Alley of this church, um, and they were so gracious to open up their home to us. Let's get a picture, can we, of their, of their house. Well, actually, that's a picture of us playing pinball and being very spiritually productive. Go back to the pinball machine. Yeah, just leave that up there right now. Yeah, we, we were fasting, praying, being uberly spiritual productive. No, Jim has this like awesome, awesome pinball collection, and, and as you can see, we were completely consumed with it. But we did get we did get productive. Okay, I promise. Now let's go to the house. Jim and Betty June about ten years ago retired. Jim built this house himself. It's on a lake in in Waldo, Florida. I call Jim and Betty June Mr. and Mrs. MacGyver, okay? And, and did you know MacGyver's getting a reboot on CBS? Did you know that? Okay, score. Jim is 75. He's still barefoot water skis, okay? He can beat anyone here in no particular order, cornhole, box hockey, and, of course, pinball, right? And, and trust me, guys, he will make you absolute, feel absolutely insecure about yourself when you're around him, okay? Just warning. Okay, Betty June, she's 70 something like that, okay? She cooks like Mario Batali. Um, she is the queen of hospitality. And you would think from the outside that their house is just a Christian retreat center, a Christian bed and breakfast. And in fact, that's exactly what their house is, okay? See, see Jim and Betty June were, were teachers for many years. Their dream was to invest in people, and that's what they did. And, they, and I, I, it's not fair to say they retired. They were reassigned in their duties. And they were just constantly hosting people in their home, cooking meals, hosting youth groups, church groups, campus ministries, events. Um, they just have literally poured out their lives on behalf of God's kingdom. Now, let me say this. They're... That is some cool music. Okay, I'm just getting right there. Okay, here we go. All right. Now, their dream doesn't have to be your dream. Okay? Their dream doesn't have to be your dream. But let me ask you this. What is your dream? Do you have one? Have you thought about what it means to, to take this stewardship that Jesus has given you and leverage it for his kingdom, for his glory with him right at the center? And let me tell you, folks, why this is not just pastor speak. Let me tell you why I think this is important. In 2 Corinthians 5, which we studied last year, Jesus says that he has given, Paul says Jesus has given us a great stewardship. He's given every one of us time, talents, money, resources, relationships, not in the same proportions, not in the same way. It's different in context, but he's given all of us the stewardship. And he says, one day I'm coming back and I am going to, to, call you to account for how you've stewarded this. This is not a, a judgment based upon salvation. This is a judgment based upon stewardship, works. And I don't know about you, but I want in that day Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Guys, this is really, really important stuff. Have you thought about 
how to create a rhythm in your life around your resources that will sustain you for the rest of your life, that will make you spiritually productive for the kingdom. That's the question this passage is pressing forward for us. Luke 12, very familiar parable, just nine verses beginning at verse 13. Now, someone in the crowd said to him, meaning Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, get us off autopilot this morning. Get us off our, our, our daily rhythms, our weekly rhythms. Get our heads up. Let us look out on the road. Let us see what you, what, what you have called us to do, designed us to do for your kingdom, for your glory. Lord, we cannot do that. We, we can't make things grow. You have to do that. So we're asking for your help this morning, that your word would penetrate our hearts. Lord, our hearts are hard. Our hearts are shallow. They're full of weeds. Unless your Holy Spirit lets them take root, your word take root, Lord, it will just, we won't bear fruit. So, Father, we're asking, I'm asking on behalf of Four Oaks that we would dream big gospel dreams, that we would steward wisely, faithfully, generously everything that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a central truth and there is an urgent action in this passage. A pretty straightforward central truth and an urgent action. The central truth is found in verse 15. Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That's the truth. The action, because we, we do want to be just, we want to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. The urgent action is stated negatively in verse 21, but we're going to say it positively. So he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The urgent action is this, Four Oaks Church, be rich towards God. And Jesus is going to tell us a story to, un, to emphasize that truth, to drive it home, to call us to action. And it's a story with four scenes, so to speak. And we're going to work our way through them. And here we go. We have the inquiry of a man. We have the story of a fool. We have the verdict from Jesus. And then we have the lessons for us. Got it? That's where we're going. The inquiry from a man. So Jesus is teaching the people. And there's a request from the crowd, an inquiry. There's some dispute about 
an inheritance. And this would not have been unusual in that time. It was the custom for the people of Israel, when they had a dispute about the law, to bring them to the ruler of the synagogue or to the rabbi or to a judge or an elder. You see, Old Testament law had certain stipulations about inheritances and how they worked. But like any kind of law, there was always gray areas. The law could not speak to every specific context. And apparently, this man was in the midst of a, of a, a, a real struggle um, about what was going to happen to his livelihood. See, the, the Bible is not obtuse to your needs and my needs and our practical needs and money and finances. Money is all over the scriptures. And you've heard this before. Other than the kingdom of God, Jesus speaks more commonly about money, financial resources than any other subject. It's a biblical concern when we have a concern about money. See, a number of you are financial planners, and, and we're thankful for you, okay? And your job is to, is to help us envision a financial future, right? A dream. What do we have to do now to get to a certain point um, what, in order to do this particular thing at this particular time? And one of you is working with our church staff, and I was just personally bitterly disappointed when you told me that you just don't get to 67 years old, retire, quit your job, expect someone to send you a check so that you can travel around the world. Okay, that was news to me. Okay, so I've been trying to work, trying to recover from that bad news. The point is we have to plan. That's not bad. This is a legitimate question from this man. We have legitimate questions about provision. He has a question about his financial future. It's valid. It's real. It's a concern. Jesus cares. It's biblical. However, there's something amiss. There's sort of something wrong going on underneath the surface. And Jesus wants to start putting his finger on this. And we, the first indication we get as he calls this guy man, okay, not, not amigo, not pal, not mate, not friend. In the Greek, this is not a friendly term. And, and when we look at the context, we can understand why. Jesus is here, and we know this in the context of Luke, speaking and teaching about incredible spiritual truths. He's, he's speaking about eternal life and death and forgiveness and trusting God and praying and true religion. And sort of in the middle of all this, this man sort of like barges in with a question, and it's a great question, but it's terribly the wrong time. And it's like, okay, okay, Jesus, all this spiritual stuff is well and good, but I've got a more pressing concern. I'm getting ripped off, and I need you to fix it. It would be like Susan and I having a family meeting where we pour out our heart for our children, right? We, we, we're casting a dream and a vision for what we want to see God do in their lives and how we want to see them grow as children of the God and be burst forth into the mission field. And I mean, we're just pouring our hearts out and we get to the end of the meeting and one of them looks at the other and says, that's awesome, but what are we having for dinner, mom, right? Okay, none of our kids have ever done that, but let's say they did. That's what this man did. Now, to understand what's amiss about his question, what's wrong under the hood, so to speak. I, I want to I say something somewhat controversial. It shouldn't be controversial, but in a postmodern 
every dream is valid, a dream is a wish your heart makes, when you wish upon a star, all that. Okay, in, in, in our culture, where every dream is deemed to be equally true, even among Christians, even among Christians, I want to say something somewhat controversial. While everyone has dreams, there's nothing wrong with dreams, while everyone has dreams, everyone here has dreams, make no mistake, not all dreams are created equal. Because if they were, Jesus wouldn't have had to tell this story. See, this, this man articulates a dream. He, he articulates a vision for what he thinks is going to be the good life. And Jesus says, no, no. There's something defective about your dream because there's something defective about your heart. And I want to put my finger on that. Guys, God wants to do that for us too this morning. Not as a killjoy, but as a grace to free us so that we can, we can enjoy God, so that we can have everlasting joy, eternal joy in things that matter. And so to press this point home, point two, Jesus tells the story of a fool. Okay? We don't know, so, so in order to give this truth to this man, he tells a story about a fictitious man. And the rich man, we, we don't know much about him except we do know this. He's wealthy, he's successful, his, his, he has prospered in his business, he, he's, he's made plans, he's decided to, big, uh, to build bigger barns. And so, so right off the bat, let me just say a couple, several things that are not wrong here. Okay, first of all, it's, it's, the problem is not that he was rich. We know this from Scripture. Scripture assumes wealth. It's always a matter of what you do with it. Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb for Jesus. Abraham was wealthy. We just preached through Philemon. Philemon was a very wealthy man. The problem also was not that his business prospered. You know, it's interesting that he's a farmer. And if you are a farmer, and God bless your soul, okay, God bless your soul if you were a farmer, you of all people know that so much of your livelihood is in the hand of God, is it not? <laughs> it either rains or it doesn't rain. Okay, it's either great weather or it's or it's bad weather. You can plant, you can sow, but ultimately it's in God's timing. So the God grew this man's crop. See, it's not bad when your investments increase. It's not bad when you get a raise or a promotion or even get an inheritance. It's not the problem. It's not even that the man built a barn. See, when God blesses us with things, we have to plan for that. We have to take that into account. We have to figure out how we're going to steward those resources. Here was the issue. None of those things. The issue was this man's dream. And let's read again what his dream was. Look at verse 19. He says, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The word ample means in great amount, abundance, way more than is needed. So if you go to Five Guys Burgers and Fries, best fries in town, amen? Okay, I got an amen from Rob. Okay, good, amen, okay. So, so, and you know what's part of the awesomeness there is that they get those cups and they cram all those fries in, right? Which is great, which is a good start. But then here comes the best part. They stick it in the bag and then what do they do? 
they take another big scoop of fries and dump the mother load right on top, okay? And of course, being the gracious father I am, I'm to my children, let me share this bountiful abundance with you. No way, Jack. Okay, I'm eating stuffing in my face. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to sneak some of that into the movie theater. I'm like going crazy, right? That's what the rich man was doing. He wasn't asking, how am I to steward what God has blessed me with? He's not asking, who am I going to serve? Who am I going to bless with this? No, 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 no. That's not my concern. My, my concern is I'm going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And the word relax literally means to be at my ease. And you may say, Pastor Paul, you just preached a message on Christian recreation last week. You said that eating and drinking and relaxing, those are good things. Those are gifts from God. What, what gives? I thought this, would, this is... Is this not cool? Because let's think about the word relax for just a minute. Parents and, and kids, I don't mean to be hating on you, but let me have a little conversation with your parents. Parents, when are you most relaxed? When are you most relaxed? <laughs> All the kids are like, <laughs> yeah, that you know, okay? When the kids are around, no, no, okay? When the kids are gone, when no one is making any demands of you, no one's asking you any questions in the middle of your favorite TV show. When no one is like getting you to get the ninth cup of water that night. You know, you know, you know, like making you do things like actually serve them, okay? And inconvenience yourself, all right? So, so, so we totally get this. See, Christian recreation and relaxation in its proper amount is a good thing when it propels us and motivates us in our roles, See, when it renews our relationship with God and it propels us forward in our relationship with one another. For the rich man, his dream of recreation in the good life was not to propel him toward roles, it was to absolve himself from them. See, look at this. He uses the word I eight times. The fact that he wants to tear down his barns, that's very interesting. Because you know he could have built more barns. But see, that would have taken up portions of his land that was producing crops. So, no, no, we can't have that. So we're going to keep them producing. We're going to tear down the barns we have. We're going to turn our two-story barn into a five-story barn. Farmers, is there such a thing? Probably not. I just made it up, okay? But you get the idea. See, his idea is, I'm just going to put everything I have in here, not to, not to store to give away, not to give to my synagogue or my church or the poor or to provide jobs. It was like he was saying, the thing that will bring me the greatest amount of happiness is a life free from obligations to others. So when you watch that HGTV show, House Hunters, the island version, anybody seen that? This is basically people deciding to cash it out go purchase an island, a deserted island, and move there. Now, now don't get me wrong. Um, usually on Sunday afternoon, I'm ready to go to a deserted island. Okay, totally get it, okay? But what's interesting is how all the, these people mobilize their whole life and animus around, around these dreams. And you have to say, why do people do that? Why do people want to go to a deserted island? Because nobody can mess with them, right? <laughs> nobody can impose themselves, there are no demands. There is eat, drink, be merry, listen, to relax. See, this wasn't propelling this man forward in his mission. 
It was the defining rhythm of his life. And do you know what Jesus calls this? Hey, look back at the text for a second. Verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 15. He says, this is covetousness. The word is literally lust. To desire more. You know, sexuality given by God is a good thing. It's a great thing within the confines of marriage. But have you ever thought, what makes sexual attraction lust? I want you to think about that. See, it's not a sin to desire to provide, a desire to grow, a desire to have more per se. But when does sexual attraction become lust? It becomes lust when it desires more than what God has given. It desires it in different places than what God has given. It desires it It's it's bad when it desires it in different proportions. See, dreams are given by God. But when the dreams become the most important thing, like they did with this man, it destroyed his soul. It may sound like hyperbole, but it's not. Soul, this night, your life is required of you. That's why we, folks, we see so many warnings in Scripture about this. Just here's one, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Now listen to this. And pierced themselves with many pains. Guys, we... When we think about why Jesus says this passage, to watch yourselves, to be on guard, what he means, he literally means, get your dukes up. You see, it's like an attacker comes into your home and threatens your family. And if someone were to do that, you aren't going to sit there and finish your latest episode on Netflix, are you? Right? Hopefully not. You're going to go on the offensive. You're going to get... You're going to get proactive. And Jesus says, you've got to guard yourself. for You cannot go through this life and just go from thing to thing to thing. You've got to think and strategize. And guys, one of the ways, let me say this is a point of application. One of the ways that I think Jesus, God gives us as a grace to protect ourselves in this is to talk about our rhythms and our dreams and our resources with other people. See, one of, one of the reasons this man is deceived about his dreams is that he is having a conversation with whom? Himself. He is having a one-person conversation. Look, look what the text says. It says, soul, and you get the sense this, you don't address yourself as soul. This is a strange man. Okay, but he's speaking to himself about his own dreams. Boys, can I tell you something? That's very dangerous when we do that. Who are you speaking to about your dreams and about your resources and about your rhythms? You know, years ago, there was a man who asked to meet with me before, right before church service, and of course that was not accidental. And then he, he sort of dropped the stunner of all time. He said, you know, he was a member of the church, has a family, he says, I, I'm moving across the country I'm going to be separated from my family for an extended amount of time. And I'm going to do this because I have a dream. 
I want to be involved doing this particular vocation. I don't know what local church is there. I don't know what body believers I'll be attached to. I don't know what life is going to look like for my, my family while I'm gone. But the worst thing, the worst thing, is that he didn't talk to anyone about it. He just sort of dropped the mic and left town. That's what the rich man did. And not hyperbole, Jesus says it cost him his soul. The application point for us is that guarding our hearts against covetousness and falling in love with this falling in love with this life means processing our deepest desires, deepest dreams, our deepest plans with the people that God's put around us. That's our community. As we unite, we need people speaking into our dreams or we will do stupid things. Okay? We will do dumb things. We will, we will waste our dreams. Your spouse, your pastor, your community group leader, your elder, who's, who's doing that for you? Who's, who's coming alongside of you? This man didn't have any of that, didn't want any of that. And it costs him everything. That's why Jesus renders his verdict. Third point, the verdict. Jesus calls this man fool. He said, God requires your soul. Now, the, 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 the Greek is very interesting. It's as if it could be said like this. Your soul has been summoned today. Hey, hey soul, guess what? They've summoned you in the other room. Um, when I was in seminary and part of the righteous remnant in that class that had no idea what was going on in our Greek class, okay, at all, okay, which was why we hid ourselves on the back row, okay, behind our interlinear, praying against hope that Dr. Chamwood would not call upon us, right, okay, because we had no idea what we were doing, okay. I know that gives you great confidence, and the public ministry here it actually helped us to learn Greek over the long term, but that's a whole different that's a whole different story. What were we terrified of? We knew that we can be summoned at any time. At any time, he had the authority and the power to call on us and say, translate this thing. Now, here is why in this story, the rich man is a fool. Okay, this is why. He forgets that he can be summoned at any time. Folks, do you, do you think about the fact that you can be summoned at any time? I know that cognitively, we know that life is short, that life is unpredictable, that ultimately things are not in our control. We, we cognitively know that, but guess what? The fool forgets. See, the fool is someone who lives his life as if God is not in view, who lives like this truth of summoning isn't real. Guys, we are fools when we plan as if God is the one not ultimately in control. And when we forget this idea of summoning, guys, we will make catastrophic spiritual mistakes. We will make catastrophic assumptions. We will assume that we're always going to be healthy. We assume that our marriage partner will always be there. We assume that our kids will be obedient or that our job will be a given. Folks, let me say this. Only one thing is certain in this life as a believer, and that's God's eternal care of your soul. That's the only thing that's certain. 
And this is why James says when it comes to our dreams and it comes to our life, we have to drink a big goblet of humility. You know the passage, James 4, 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. There was a verdict that Jesus pronounced over this man. And it was not because he was rich or because he planned or because he prospered. It's just that he was deceived about his dreams. He assumed that life and possessions were indefinite. And because of that, his priorities did not include the priorities of God. What about you? What about you? What about me? Now, let's make no mistake, folks. This, this would be a grim place to leave this passage if we had to walk away right now. But by God's grace, we have hope. Because Jesus lives, gives us or leaves us with an exhortation. And I want to draw three lessons for us from this, and then we'll be done. Go to verse 21, action point. I said this at the beginning. Jesus says it negatively. We're going to say it positively. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is Jesus saying? Four oaks, go out. Be rich towards God. What does that mean? It's an interesting phrase. John Piper says this. Rich towards God means counting God greater riches than anything on the earth. Rich towards God means using earthly riches to show how much you value God. And let me tell you why this is hard in an affluent culture. Because when you get a raise or a bonus or more money, what is your first instinct? Is it to increase your level of giving or is it to increase your level of living? Okay, guilty, right? There's a story, Rich Mullins, who died in an automobile accident about 20 years ago, Christian singer, very successful, had no concept of money. And he told his manager, um, you know, how much do I need to live on? The manager appropriated this amount. Rich was a single man, cared for the poor and foster children and all those things. And he said, I don't want to know what I make. Just keep it away from me. I don't want to know. And, and so Rich just did his thing and lived in a little, little tiny little house and drove a pickup truck. And one day he came to his, his manager and said, hey, uh, can I afford to send some kids to camp? I kind of looked at him and said, Rich, you can, aff- you can afford that, okay? You're, you're in good shape, right? Because he had made this intentional decision. That's not everybody's decision here to make, Okay. But it does show how he guarded himself. See, wealth brings us as Americans untold opportunity. We, wealth brings choices. We have more choices and because of our affluence than any other society in the history of the world. And there is, make no mistake, there is incredible opportunity with that. There's incredible opportunity to bless the kingdom, 
There's incredible opportunity to, to support the church and to support missions. But guess what? There is an incredible danger. And that's what Jesus is speaking towards. Because our propensity as Americans is the more we make, and this is statistically true, the less generous we become. Here's a couple of statistics. Ready? For Christian families making less than 20,000, guys, that's poverty, okay? Less than 20,000, 8% of them tied, 8%. For families making a minimum of $75,000 or more, which is probably most of you in this room or a majority, just 1% tied. Now, that may or may not be true here. For, for I, have, I don't know. But statistically, 37% of people who attend church every week and identify themselves as evangelicals don't give any money to their church. Now, we may say, you know, there's a giving problem. Or, or no, we may say, you know, there, there, there's a financial problem here, right? The, the, the economy's not stable or things are precarious or we're in debt. And guys, that's true. There's no doubt that's true. But I don't think the problem is our ability to give. Our problem is with our dreams. See, Jesus doesn't want to just speak into your dreams, critique your dreams, assess your dreams. Guys, he wants to provide an alternative, a better dream, an eternal dream, a lasting dream with him right at the center. So here's three application points and we're done very quickly. The first and most obvious relates to personal giving. Let me run at this a different way. If you were a Christian, professing Christian, and you don't have an appetite for the things of God, if you do not have an appetite for gospel dreams, it's probably because you don't have any skin in the game. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart follows your treasure. Because this church, many of you have been so amazingly generous. But if you're a part of that 37% who gives little or none, then I've got, got an encouragement to you. Start giving and start praying. And I believe that God will ignite your heart where your treasure is. He will ignite for you a gospel dream. Second, second application point, get your, get your steel-toed boots on. Ready? We're going to stomp. Ready? Can we do that? Okay. Some of you need to rethink retirement. Ralph Winter said this, and I'm glad he said it so that I don't have to say it, but he says it for me, right? Okay. Most men don't die of old age. They die of retirement. I read somewhere that half the men retiring in the state of New York die within two years. I hope you're not planning to retire to New York anytime soon, right? Now, because let me say this. There's many reasons, valid reasons, good reasons, why you can't work in the way that you once did. Your health might not be as good. Your job may have been phased out. Um, there, there may be stamina issues. There may be health issues. None of that, though, fundamentally changes the call that God gives us in Titus chapter 2 when it says this, who, meaning Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, ready, who are zealous for good works. Guess what? That verse does not have an expiration date. Okay? That verse does not just stop applying to you once you reach a certain socioeconomic status or, or level of, 
of living or a particular age. It applies independently to job, of your job or your age or your means. I think we need a new word, okay? I think we ought to exchange retirement for spiritual productivity. Because spiritual productivity says, how do I leverage my life today? How do I establish a rhythm that pushes me towards spiritual productivity for the rest of my life, however long that is? As George Mueller had a gospel dream, lived in the 1800s in the UK, um, single-handedly birthed an, an, an orphan movement that cared for tens of thousands of orphans. And, and I could tell you, his, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing story about his dream. But what's equally amazing is what happened when he turned 70, okay? Turning over the reins of his ministry, listen to this, over the next 17 years, when he was 70, till the time he died when he was 87, over the next 17 years, he traveled the world visiting 42 countries, preaching an average of once every day. And it's estimated that between the ages of 70 and 87, he spoke to three million people. And you may say, Pastor Paul, that dream is too inaccessible. That is unrealistic. I can't talk in front of people. Fine. What's your dream? Because there's a man in the church, I'll call him David. You know him as David Hughes. Okay. All right. So I blew his cover. (laughs) He's our church business administrator, elder here for 20 years, worked faithfully for 35 plus years in the banking, financial, fundraising business. Bunch of grandchildren, two grown children, one who can halfway play the guitar pretty well, okay, so, and his job was being phased out, and he says, you know, what now? He says, I could retire, I could kick it in Killarne, that just sounds so depressing, doesn't it, kick it in Killarne, at least go to Punta Gorda, right, collect seashells, as John Piper would say, but this, but he took me out to lunch, and he said, Paul, listen, I, I just want to do what God wants me to do, I want to be spiritually productive for the rest of my life. I want to maximize ministry as long as God has me here. Can I come to work for the church? I don't need much money, okay? Because let me just say, and please stop the recording now, we pay David sweatshop wages, okay? He, I mean, he is worth four times what we're paying him. It's not the point. The point is that David had a dream to faithfully serve the Lord, to be rich towards God. Your dream doesn't have to be his dream. Your dream doesn't have to be George Mueller's dream. Your dream has to be Jim and Betty June's dream. What's your dream, though? Third and last point, we're done. Prioritize the people of God. Guys, there's two things are forever. The word of God and the people of God. The only family we'll have in heaven, the only family we'll need is the family of God so I want to end this morning with a pastoral plea. Or Oaks, don't let your age, don't let your affluence, don't let your dreams separate you from the people of God. Let your dreams propel you towards the people of God. Call it the local church. See, your whole life is to center your dreams around what Jesus died for. That never ends, regardless of age, regardless of how much you make, regardless of how little you make. 
Four Oaks prioritize the people of God. It's the biblical pattern. As as we transition to the table, let me just say this. Some of you might be saying, Pastor Paul, I am that rich man. Or I am that fool. And I have wasted so many years and so much time and so many resources. And let me just, this is why Jesus ends with this good news. Because Jesus also had a dream. And that was to die for you. To sacrifice for you, the people of God, so that you could have everlasting joy. And when he lays claim to your heart, he gives you a new dream. He gives you grace today. He gives you opportunity to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. But it starts by fundamentally saying, I'm that guy. Four Oaks, I'm that guy. He's not some distant figure out here. He's, he's me. And he's you. And he's all of us. And that's why we come together as his people to say, God, help us. Give us your grace. Give us your mercy. In Jesus and him alone.